Amen. You may be seated. Man, I really like that song. The first time I heard it, I was struggling with it, but man, that time it was it was it was really good. The melody is not easy, but the lyrics are too good not to sing. So that's my plug. All right, so stick with it. Yeah, that was what I was thinking. You just articulated it better. That's really good. Those words. Well, John chapter seventeen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. 627 words. This is our third week in our series through John 17. That's how many words are used there by Jesus in this prayer before the Father. Um, again, said this every week, this is a little bit different than how we are, uh, are usually preaching through books of the Bible at Poplar Spring, looking at themes in this chapter instead of going verse by verse. And so to remind you where we've been, the first week we looked at, uh, we saw what the, the Father has given the Son, and we know that from Christ's prayer. Uh, last week, we saw what the Son has given to his followers, and today, this morning, we'll see what the Son asks the Father to do, and then next week, in our final week in this series, we'll see what Christ's followers do in relation to the world, or how they are to live in relation to the world. And so before we jump into our text, let me give you a, a little bit of a, an intro again, as we've done every week. I want to set the context for you in case you've not been with us. John chapters 14 through 16 uh, are, are a section of Scripture unique to John's gospel that we call the farewell discourse. Jesus knew very well that he was about to face his, his death and resurrection and would ascend and, and go to be at the right hand of the Father. And so he gives his disciples, his followers, some final marching orders, some teaching um, as, he's, as he knows his time, is his hour is coming, as verse 1 says. And then in chapter 17, Jesus prays, and this too is unique to John's gospel. You won't find this prayer in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and it's by far the longest prayer of Jesus. And Jesus is just pouring his heart out before the Father. He's given an account of his his ministry and the life that he's lived. He's giving one final account before the Father before he faces his trial and execution. And he knows, he's very well aware that this this final hour is coming, this hour that all of creation has been longing for, and yet he still stops to pray. He still takes a moment here and he, he's praying before the Father and we get this glimpse. And it's this really incredible glimpse that we see of Jesus because it, it shows us his, his consciousness, what Jesus is thinking about, what his uh, thoughts are and his perspective on his own suffering. And then after he's gone for his disciples, it gives us just this really candid look at the relationship between the Father and the Son. And so for so many reasons, this text is just incredibly rich where we get to watch Jesus as he takes inventory of his life, as he prays for our unity and for our sanctification, as he prays for his followers then and in future ones, us now, living today. We'll see even more of that um, in a few moments as we get into the text. And so as we've done every week, I want us to hear this prayer as a prayer together, all 26 verses, all 627 words. And so I'm going to ask my, my brother Paul if he would come up. He's going to read our text for us this morning. You hear uh, the word of the Lord, hear this prayer from Jesus, and be listening as he reads as to what the Son asks of the Father, what he asks the Father to do. What the Son asks the Father to do. Um, the first thing you note there, we're going to jump right in. I have five for you this morning, five observations in the text that we see the Son asking of the Father. Uh, requests he's making before the Father. The first one is that the Son asked the Father to glorify him. Um, you see it in verses 1 through 5. One commentator, though, that, that, verses 1 through 5 are 1 and 5 are where you see it explicitly. But one commentator says, in fact, the personal glorification here of Jesus is the unquestionable thrust of the entire prayer. And I think there's probably truth in that. Look at verses 1 and 5 together, though. That's where we hear him specifically ask for this. 
It says in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then in verse 5, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So when the Son asked for the Father to glorify him, what does that mean? What's he asking for uh, specifically? Well, the, the glory of God is seen, and we've mentioned this a little bit in our former two weeks, last week and the week before. The glory of God is seen in the revelation of who God is, uh, what God is. And so the, the, this morning, the, the think about this, the, the more revelation, the, the clearer picture, or the more understanding we have of God, the greater the display of his glory. And, uh, and so throughout history, we've seen his glory dis- displayed in varying degrees and in different ways. Uh, Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, meaning that in some sense and in some way, the heavens, the stars, the planets, the universe that he's created reveals glory about God, that there is a God, that he exists, and that he created the world. Now, throughout history and in the Bible, even in the scriptures, we see this, that there's been believers, followers of God that have had opportunities to go beyond that level of revealed glory to specific and personal experiences where the glory of God has been revealed to them in a different way, Uh, even if incomplete, right? Even if an incomplete revelation of his glory. So think, for example, Moses on Mount Sinai when he receives the Ten Commandments. He meets with God and he comes down and his face is radiating, the text says, the glory of God. Think of Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration as they have that time with Jesus up on the mount and Jesus pulls the curtain back and allows them for just a moment to experience the splendor of his glory, the text says. And they didn't want it to end. They wanted to set up tents and and stay there in that moment. But by far, and the text would tell us this, by far the most complete revelation of God's glory of who he is was in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, uh, says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, if Jesus is the fullest revelation of God's glory, if in Jesus we see God's glory and who he is, his nature, his character, who God is, most complete in Jesus, then what is Jesus praying for when he prays for the Father to glorify him? I think it's at least three things here that Jesus has on his mind that he's, that he's intending as he prays this. The first one is this. You'll see these in our, our notes on the slides. Jesus was praying for his glorification on the cross. He's already glorified the Father with a perfect life that he lived on earth. He acknowledges this in his, in his prayer. That's what he says in verse 4. We didn't read verse 4, but that's, that's what he says. His miracles, his teaching, yes, but, but more than that, his everyday life. Jesus' everyday life glorified the Father perfectly because it was perfect obedience. It was sinlessness. So he's glorified the Father in his life, but in this moment, it's not his life. It's his death that's on his mind. You say, well, Matt, how in the world do you know Christ's mind? Are you a mind reader such that... Well, he's already said it in verse 1. He's talking about the hour that's near. He's thinking about, he's contemplating his death. And he's already, if you go through John's gospel, he's already mentioned this. And his followers don't seem to get it. 
And so not so much his life, but his death. His death will bring glory to God. And that's what he's asking for. Glorify me in this, this next phase, this next season that's awaiting his trial and execution. So how in the world will his crucifixion bring glory, right? Like think about that and try to disconnect our understanding of cross, gospel, salvation from think about what it would have meant for them. Like to hear this sort of prayer that a, a crucifixion would bring glory to God. Something that's, that's reserved for the, the execution of criminals, the worst of criminals, in mockery and in shame, in nakedness, being spit upon? How in the world does that equal glory? It shows us glory, church family, because it shows us the holiness of God. We see his love of holiness. We see God's love of holiness and his hatred of sin in the refusal to compromise with it, right? You think about this. When we see that, that, that God is not just some crooked judge or, or ruler that can sweep injustice under the rug and look the other way as, as sin just gets a pass. He can't do that. And so we see God's love of justice and that he must condemn sin. His justice is of such magnitude that he, he has to do right. He has to do the thing that is just, even if that means his wrath is going to be poured out on his perfect son. That's, that's glory. That's glory that we see there in the cross. We also see not just his justice, but we see his love. We see God's vast love for us in the cost that he paid for our redemption. Now think about this. If Jesus had stopped short of the cross then that would have meant, that would have proved that there is a degree to love, a degree of love to which the Father is not prepared to go for us, for his people. If Jesus stops short of Calvary, then, then there is a limit, right? But what we see in the cross is that there is no limit to God's love and justice. We wouldn't have known this without the cross. So God, who created the universe, sees his son hanging on a, the tree of Golgotha, covered in the spit of those he came to save, gasping for his final breath, while the sins of the world are showered upon his heart. And it's the cross that allows us to see this. This is the love and justice of God coming together in one of the most gruesome and beautiful pictures in the, in the entire uh, cosmos. And this is how we see it. This is the glory that Jesus is praying for. So if you want some application here in this prayer and in our, in our sermon this morning, the application is this. Think deeply about the cross. Contemplate the cross and what it means. The deeper our, our contemplation of the, the, the cross, the deeper our understanding of God, and the more profound our glorification of him, our understanding, our revelation of who he is and what he's done. So we're thinking about, and remind you where we're at, we're thinking about what Jesus is intending when he prays here, that the Father would glorify him. The first thing we see there, though, is, his, is in his death, in the cross. Second, he's praying for his glorification in heaven. He says this in verse 5. This is the, the other part that we read. He says, now, and, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so, yes, Jesus is praying, and when he's praying, he's thinking about his death. That's obvious from verse 1. But as he's praying, he's also thinking beyond his death to his coming glorification in heaven. So what is that glorification like? What, what was his glory like before the, the incarnation when he became a man, before the world existed, verse 5 says? Well, much of that's a mystery to us. But when we look at all of Scripture, some things emerge, some picture emerges, even if it's an imperfect picture. What we know is that he was the creator of a universe so large 
that it would take a person at least 50 octillion, with an O, octillion years traveling at the speed of light to visit every star in our galaxy that we know about. We know that he created that. That's the sort of glory he's playing, praying for here. We know that he enjoyed perfect intimacy with the rest of the Godhead, that with God the Father and God the Spirit and God the Son, there was perfect unity and peace and joy there that existed with them for all eternity. That's the glory he's praying for here. That's what he has in mind when he's praying about being in the presence of the Father. Beyond that, we know very little. So the Lord's return to heaven here is a, it's a sanctifying thought. Now let's dive in a bit deeper because I believe when you look at this in the text here, verse 5, and then you look at texts like Philippians chapter 2, and you put them side by side, we can begin to understand and see a little bit. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says this. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He's bestowed that name on him. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So based on John 17, 5 and Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, it seems, at least to me, that the glory that Jesus is praying for here in John 17, 5 is an acquired glory because he speaks of it as a glory that's a consequence of his earthly life and suffering. Put Philippians 2, 9 and 11 with John 17, 5. What do I mean there? I mean that the name he bears, Jesus, is a name that forever, eternally he will bear. Jesus, the man from Nazareth, fully God, fully human, bearing that name means that this glorious human life, this perfect life that he lived, and the glorious death that he's about to die are marks, right, that he will bear. Marks of his suffering for his people. Now, this part sort of hurts my brain, but bear with me. Maybe it hurts your brain too. But how do you perfect perfection? Like, he lived a perfect life. And yet he's praying for something in heaven that's going to be different, right? Infinite glory can't be increased. <laughs> but this glory is greater in that there is now understanding of that glory by both men and angels, right? There's observation, there's revelation that's taking place. There's now beholding of that perfection, of that infinite glory. So Jesus' prayer for glorification in heaven was answered. <laughs> and someday, every one of us who are true believers, who have found salvation in Christ, we will experience the dashing ecstasy of that glory, as those who have gone before us already are. That's what he's praying for. Father, when I'm in your presence... May they experience this, what we had before the foundation of the world, the thought. That's what we get to look forward to as believers. That's why we don't worry about here and now. That's the second way Jesus is asking to be glorified, right? That, that, that he would be glorified in his death on the cross, that he'd be glorified in his ascension when he goes to sit at the right hand of the Father. But that's a little unsettling, isn't it? When you think about this, his glorification on the cross happened 2,000 years ago, Right? 2,000 years ago, and though we have his word, his inspired and errant word, we're not able to see it. We're not able to just go on a, 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 a time capsule and go back and transport through time and, and be there and stand at the foot of the cross and gaze at the glory of the crucifixion of the Son of God. And his glorification in heaven is only partly comprehensible, right? We have scripture that talks some about it, but we can't know perfectly. So the manifestation of his glory, if left only to the cross and to heaven, 
If that was our only understanding, then we'd be greatly disadvantaged because neither of those are perfectly accessible to us because of time and space. Does that make sense? So thank God there's a third way that Christ is praying for his glory, for his glory to be put on display, his glorification, for his glory to be revealed. That leads us to our third subpoint here. He's praying for his glorification in the church. So between the glorification of Christ in history at the cross on Golgotha and the glorification of Christ in heaven where he is now, there's another glorification on earth that we get to experience And it's now, and it's happening here, and it happens among us, his body, the church. We've mentioned numerous times that that Jesus says that he's explicitly prayed for his glory in verse 1 and in verse 5. But if you think of those verses as bookends, what comes between them? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. His reference to his people. That's what he's talking about, 2 through 4. His people, the ones who he would give eternal life to, the ones who would know him and have eternal life. Why is that significant? Well, Christ is praying for his glorification. Verse 1 and verse 5, and right smack dab in the middle of that, he thinks of us, the church. What a thought. What a thought. That should should stop us in our tracks. Meaning that from the ground level, boots on the ground, on the earth right now, we believers are the world's best hope of seeing the glory of God. Aside from the scriptures that he's revealed himself, he's revealed his glory to us in his authoritative word, walking around on this planet... We are what should be showing them this glory, this God who's given his life for us. What a thought that is. That Jesus made the Father's glory comprehensible, and so should you. So should I. So should we as the body of Christ, the people of God. We believers should be glorifying him. So it changes the way we think about everything. Our job, we're no longer simply working to earn a living and to put food on the table for our family. We're actually working to display God's glory to this world in whatever vocation he's called us to. Why do I know that? Because that's what Jesus prayed for. He's praying for you, the church, to do that. In your home, you're not just raising kind, moral little humans. You're displaying the glory of God to those little humans. And to your spouse. Friends, that's why it's vital that we're a people of the word. A people, and we're going to talk about this more in just a moment because it's one of the things he explicitly prays for. But that's why we're a people of the book. Why? Because it's our source. It's how we can know Christ. How can you reflect? How can you glorify someone that you, you have no idea, no knowledge of them? You've spent no time with them. We must meditate on the cross. It's the clearest demonstration of, of the, the love of the Father. We must devote ourselves to his word because it's how we know him so that we can be, as we walk this earth, glorifying God. And in doing these things, we experience the answer to the very thing that our Savior is praying here in John 17. So all of that was point number one. The Son asked the Father to glorify him in his death, in his going home to heaven, and in his people, the church. We have four more points, so we got to roll. Number two. The son asked the father to keep believers in the father's name. This is verse 11. This is the second part of verse 11. So if you're there with me, it says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
I want to break this down and think about the implications of what Jesus is saying here. He says, keep them. And he repeats that in verse 15. And we'll see that in a moment. Verse 15, he says, keep them again. So the request, the petition, shows us a couple things. First, it shows us the kind of thing that Jesus is praying for us now. I mean, think about this. If he's praying this for us then, on the brink of his greatest suffering, what makes you think he stopped praying for us in this way now that he's ascended to glory? He hasn't. Second thing this does is this keeping, he asks for the Father to keep us, is, is a request for the disciples, for followers of Jesus and their spiritual security. And this is what A.C. Um, Gabe Lane, I'm probably saying that name wrong, commentator on Scripture, he, he, he writes on this passage, he says this, The keeping means everything. Keeping from falling away, keeping from evil doctrines, keeping from being overcome by sorrow or in tribulation or suffering keeping them in life and in death. From this first petition of our Lord's Prayer, we learn the absolute security of a believer. If a true believer, one who belongs to Christ, who has been given by the Father to the Son, for whom the Son intercedes, can be lost, it would mean the loss of Christ's glory, the loss of a part of the travail of his soul. In other words, you want to know how you can know, and, and this is a question you get as a pastor a lot. Maybe you've asked this question yourself. Like, how can I know that I'm saved? I'm worried that I've, I've lost it, or I'm, I'm worried that I might not be born again. I'm worried that, that I might have done something wrong or bad enough that I would. You want to know how you can know that you are secure in Christ, that your, your salvation can't be lost, that you are absolutely saved? Look no further than this prayer. This is what Christ was praying for. I mean, think about it. If, if you are truly born again, born again, then in order for you to be rejected by God, it would mean that the Father would have to hear this prayer from Jesus and say, nah, I'm not going to do that one. Like, do you hear the absurdity in that? Like, he will keep you. Christ's prayer guarantees it. That if you are born again, if you have been washed in the blood of Christ, he will keep you. It's hard for us to imagine a human illustration to sort of Help us think and, and see this in a tangible way on earth because, because he's God. It's hard for us to think in, in illustrations and examples, but maybe maybe one that would be imperfect but would help us is, is the idea of parents that are going away, right? Like if, if parents were leaving, maybe going out of the country uh, for a long time or maybe forever for whatever reason they had to flee the country and leave and they were forced to entrust their kids, their children to someone else, think about how they would plead. Like keep them safe. I beg you to keep them, Right? Or a newly married man who's been called to go to war and, and he entrusts his new bride to his mom and dad. And what would he say to them? Care for her, right? Like, care for her, look after her, and love her as you've loved me. Until I return, care for her, keep her. I mean, those are imperfect examples, but, but, but the more we get into the specifics of this request, we'll, we'll see next week because of this request in particular deals with our relationship to the world. And so we'll dig deeper next week into this idea. But what I want us to see now is that Jesus, this would be incredible security and comfort for your, for your soul to see Jesus asking the Father to keep you, to hold you near. You are safe if you're in Christ. I marvel at that. Number three, third observation here in the, in the text. The son asks the father to keep believers from the evil one. We see this in verse 15. This is that other keep them statement, the other request of, of keeping them. It says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
Again, not going to spend a whole lot of time here because we're going to get into this more deeply next week when we deal with this theme of, of our relationship to the world. But we should recognize that the Father, or that the Son, is asking of the Father here to keep us from the evil one. So, so what does that mean? Well, there are a couple different thoughts here. There's some debate in scholarship as to whether Jesus is referring to evil in general, like sin, evil in general, or to Satan in particular, the evil one. And I believe it's the latter. I think the, 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 the obvious thing there is that he's, he's pointing to Satan, the evil one who corrupts and would love to corrupt the church by infusing it with worldly values, by slowly over time making the church look like the world. John, our first John, chapter 5, verse 19, says that we know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The point that Jesus is making is this. There's a threat to the church. And that threat is not, it, it, it may be outside persecution, but the greater threat to the church, even, even greater than outside persecution, is the, the assimilation of the, of the church into the world's evil ways, to the evil one's plan of making the, look, the world look like the church. The church look like the world. That would be a great thing, right? The way around. Now we could stop here. And name countless forms of, of evil that's out there, out there in the culture, in our context right now that we could see on every news channel and social media outlet. We could sit and list those and we could point at them and go, yes, that's evil. But I don't think that's what we should be spending our time doing because, see, that's not the thing. The, the, the evil that's out there that's easily identifiable is not the, the, the biggest threat to the church. The biggest threat of the church is the evil that's slipping in, that's knocking on the door or creeping in and that we have no clue that it's even here. And so just as one example, I think, and you could apply this, and so as the Holy Spirit works in your heart and you see temptation or, or sin in your own heart, think about how that could look if the rest of the church was following in that same way. So as, as I walk through just one example, let the Holy Spirit convict in, in whatever way that, that you see it happening in your own heart and life. But I think of, of one that, that we're all drawn to or tempted to is, is materialism. I mean, think about this in our world and, and how it threatens the church. Like, think about how the church now, here, looks differently from the rest of the world. And I'm not talking about 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about in other parts of the world right now, like brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world this morning that are worshiping Christ. You think about the, 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 the materialism that's, that's, that's crept into the church. How much time is spent by, by our church family, by me, me, I'm pointing the finger here, Every week, not, not, not to survive, not to put food in my children's mouths, but how much time is spent working to acquire stuff, right? Like extra stuff, not, not survival, but just, just sheer recreation or enjoyment. And I'm not condemning like recreation and enjoyment. We need that. God's built that. He's created us to enjoy things. But when it becomes such a priority that we don't even see it, that it's this blind spot right here in the middle of our, of our, of our focus, that we don't even see that it's, that it's become an idol to us. Francis Schaeffer said years ago, he said that, the, that he feared that evangelical Christians primarily desired personal peace and enough money to enjoy it, not really caring about God or others. And that was back in the 70s. James Montgomery Boyce, he cites a newspaper cartoon, and, and it's, it's kind of humorous, in large part because it's, it's, there's a lot of truth here. The cartoon showed a picture of the Mayflower and, and two pilgrims that were coming over across the Atlantic on the Mayflower to, to settle the Americas. And one of them said to the other, you know, religious freedom is my, my immediate goal, uh, but my long-term plan is real estate. So 
nothing wrong with real estate, but I think it points to this, this place where we've gotten where we're blinded by some of the things around us, some of the things that should be conviction-level things because we've lived so much of life for us and for our own pursuits. And then you multiply that by the other isms that threaten the church of Jesus today, and that's just one, but I think it's one that we could all battle with if we're not careful. The, the threat of relativism causes so many Christians to compromise biblical doctrines to be relevant in whatever sphere of influence or work that they're in. The, the, the threat of, of sensualism, of, of Hollywood entertainment that takes the place of biblical worship. The threat of humanism, of, of secular scholarship that denies biblical teachings on, on gender and creation and sexuality. The threat of consumerism and racism and secularism and hedonism. Yes, when Jesus is praying here, he was well aware that we would need to be kept from the evil one. Because he is, he is seeking to devour whomever he may. And if he can make the church like the world, then he is, he is steps ahead. He won't win. We know the end. He won't win. But that's his goal. Number four. The son asked the father to sanctify believers in the truth. This is verse 17. And in many ways, this part, this verse, could sum up the petition, uh, the petitions, all the, the requests that Jesus asks of the Father. Because so many of them can be summarized in verse 17. He says this, sanctify them, talking about believers, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There's a couple things to observe here. One, Christ's church is to be holy. Christ's church is to be holy. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, sanctify them. He says sanctify them. Sanctification is just a big, long church word. It's, it means, just real simply, the process by which God increasingly makes us holy. The process by which we look less like the world and more like Jesus. That's sanctification. That's becoming holy. It's a day-by-day turning from sin and embracing practical godliness. That's what Jesus is praying for. So Christ's church is to be holy. The second thing that we observe here, just in the simple verse 17, is that Christ's church is to be submitted and committed to the truth of God's word. And this comes because of another set of bookends that we see here. Back in verse 14, he says, I've given them your word. Jesus makes this petition that they would be kept from the evil one. That's a part of that petition where he says, I've given them your word. And then here again in verse 17, he says, your word is truth. And these are the bookends where Jesus is bringing his uh, his thoughts and our attention as we hear the prayer and read the prayer to the Word of God. And what we see is that if we're to be sanctified in truth, if we're to be made holy, increasingly like Jesus, it will come only when we're rubbing up against and committing time to being in the Word of God where we see the truth. And Christians are not those that embrace every passing intellectual fad. We are those who stand firm in the revealed word of God, the written word of God. It's our authority. And so we submit to his word. We submit to it because it's holy, it's inspired, it's inerrant. And if we're going to be holy, this is what Jesus is praying for. It'll only happen as we live out his word. Now, I want us to get real practical as we think about application. We think about living this out in our day and age, in our world. I've been asked, it's a good question, uh, by numerous ones in our church family through text or face-to-face conversations, phone calls. Matt, why, uh, why haven't you spent time either giving a, a sermon, devoting a sermon to it, or a significant time in a sermon addressing some of these social issues that we're facing? And, uh, or the question may be more like, Matt, what are your thoughts on given social issue? It's a good question. I'm not condemning the question. It's a good question. 
but what they mean by that are the, the, the Black Lives Matter um, organization and movement, uh, police brutality, the cancel culture that we see in the news, statues coming down, racial agenda, our radical agenda of the, the left, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the same question was asked to my father two decades ago. And the, 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 sixth, the situation, the circumstances were different. The context was different. But he was pastoring a church at the height of the war on terrorism and the Y2K bug. Do you guys remember that? <laughs> I was thinking about that as I was thinking about this today, like how the context changes. But the, the questions are often the same. And, man, that Y2K bug. If I could have talked to myself on like New Year's Eve, 1999, I think I've told myself, man, this thing's nothing. You got nothing to worry about here. 20 years from now, you're going to have uh, COVID-19 and uh, Saharan dust and murder hornets and uh, rioting and almost every... Ma- That's what I think I'd have warned myself of in Y2K. But nonetheless, he got the question then. The question, what, 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 why are you not speaking to? Why are you not preaching about this specific issue? And in fact, every you know, election year, major election year, people have this desire for the pastor to get up and, and be more political about certain issues or a candidate. And so if you're wondering, like, what would my answer be to those things? Here's my short answer. And I, I really try not to be agnostic when it comes to politics. I care because I care about what the scriptures say. But here's, here's what I pray every week. Every week as we have this time that we gather as the people of God, I pray that the Spirit of God, because it can't be Matt James. It can't be Matt James. It's a supernatural work that must take place that I have no power to do. But here's what I pray, that the Spirit of God would take this time that we have, this hour every week, and he would convince you through the Word of God of the beauty and the life and the effect and the transformative power of his Word. And if he would do that, when he does that, I won't have to speak to those things specifically. In other words, what we really need, church family, and this is coming from what Jesus is praying here for us in verse 17, what we really need is to put our noses in this book and don't take them out until we can't see anything but Jesus. And if we'll do that, we'll be informed in those things. He may not speak specifically to statues coming down in the scriptures, but when we can't see anything but Jesus, those things fade into the distance. This was what would happen with God's people. If God's people were doing that, then we wouldn't have to have current events translated to us by news agencies that are are, are hustling and jostling for your allegiance. God desires his people to be holy. That's what Christ is praying for. Verse 17, as far as I can see, CNN, Fox News, Facebook, they've never transformed someone into the image and likeness of Christ. But you know who has the spirit? Who can do that is the spirit of God. That's what he's praying for. That's where the power of this transformation takes place. And as you gaze at him and as I gaze at him in his word, that's what he's praying for. Your word is truth. That's exactly what happens. How do I know? How can I guarantee you that? Because that's what Jesus is praying for. And just like you won't be lost if the Father's keeping you, you will be transformed if you're doing that. If you are in the word of God, that's what he's praying for. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Listen, our generation, our world, this lost world needs legions of believers in Christ who are empowered by God's word to live holy lives. That's that's what will make the difference in our culture. We need a generation of Christians who are not captivated and, and fascinated by the flesh and by sin, but by the beauty of holiness. They're not daunted by a culture that's so dark and worldly, but convinced of God's power. And this is not some new idea. This is not just Matt's done with this, the culture and context that we're living in. This is what the Apostle Paul told young Timothy. 
This is what he told him. He told him the exact same thing. Paul warned Timothy, even in the, in the New Testament, that, that, that there would be times of unbelief. There would be times when culture would be so dark around him that, that it would look hopeless. But what did he encourage him to do? What would he do? What would Timothy do when, when the world around him would reject sound teaching and, and seek worldly advice that tickled their ears? What did Paul charge Timothy to do? Well, 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word. Your word is truth, Jesus says in verse 17. In season and out of season, Timothy, preach the word. There's no other power on earth that compares to the transformative power of God's word, Timothy. Preach it. Don't stop preaching it. No matter how dark it gets, preach the word. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Again, this is Paul to young Timothy. All scripture, Timothy, is, is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Preach the word, Timothy. It's efficient. It'll work. It is the only power that we have for transformation. So you want an unbiased news source? You want objective truth? Help inter- uh, you want help interpreting the, the events around us? Put your nose in the book. Put your nose in the book, and the truth will meet you there. One final thing that we see here, one final request that the Father asks of the Son. It comes in verses 20 and 21. It says the Father asks, or the Son asks the Father to make believers one. He asks that, that we would be one, verses 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That they, will, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. In verse 20, Jesus explicitly prays for you and for me, for, for us as followers of Jesus. He says that he's praying for those who will believe in me. That, that's us. We've received the word. We've received the gospel. If you've believed upon Christ, and this is specifically the part of the prayer where Jesus is praying for, for you, in, in particular, the ones who will believe. After identifying the who of the prayer, it's important to get to the what of this part of the prayer. What's he praying for? It's unity. It's unity. And now you, you say, Matt, we've spent a good bit of time talking about that last week and the week before. But we're going to do that again this morning. You may ask why. I said, well, if it comes up in Jesus' prayer as something that the Father gives the Son, and it comes up in the prayer as something that the Son gives his followers, and it comes up as something that the Son asks of the Father, it sounds like it's pretty important, and we might just should spend another week looking at it. I do want to observe, though, another aspect of this unity, a little bit different from last week that we talked about. Last week, I felt like the focus, at least in my own heart and mind and thinking as I was preparing and praying through last week, was the, the, the local church, us as believers here at Poplar Spring. But I think it strikes me that as Jesus prays here for future followers, that we would be one as the Trinity is one. He's not praying specifically for the local church. He's praying for all believers of all generations. That there's a unity that we should have as Christians, all Christians, despite any differences that we might have because of time or space, because of where we're located and when we're living. A.W. Tozer, incredibly wise writer, thinker, he said this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could be if they were to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Listen to this last sentence. 
Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. So as we look at our lives, it's a question we must wrestle with. Do I have more in common with believers that lived 1,500 years ago or my neighbor that's lost that lives right down the street from me? Sure, circumstances change, context change. We probably wear different clothes and stuff like that. But if we're tuned to the same fork, the doctrines that we see in Holy Scripture, then we should be more in tune with them than we are our neighbors that don't know Christ now. So let me give us this morning, if, we're, if that's the case, if there's to be a global unity in, in the bride of Christ, the people of God that have ever lived, that that's what Christ is praying for here, and this principle of unity, this principle of, 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 of in unity and truth that Jesus is praying for, what observations can we make to strive for that sort of unity that Jesus is praying for? I'll give you three real quick, and then we'll close with this. The first is this, Christian unity, Christian unity, certainly at Poplar Spring too, but I'm talking more globally at this point. Christian unity requires us to believe what the Bible says. We've already spent some time here this morning, so I won't rehash this. Suffice it to say, that if we remove obedience to the scriptures, we have no leg to stand on when it comes to unity with the global body of Christ. Like we may think we're making it easier, right? Like if, if, if we remove some of the hard stuff, right? Some of the tricky things of scripture, some of the things that are hard to understand and interpret, hard to live out because they would seem to offend or be politically incorrect. Like if we remove some of those things, maybe we could be more unified. It would be simpler. It would be easier, right? No, If we don't have the scriptures to stand on, we're actually destroying any grounds that we could have for spiritual unity. And so we have to believe what the Bible says. Second is this, Christian unity requires us to not add to what the Bible says. Sadly, our man-made rules and convictions and extra-biblical doctrines have divided Christians who should, according to Jesus' prayer, be unified as one. I mean, think about even on a, on a smaller level, zoom in micro level to a local church, right? I know I'm still talking about global here, global uh, unity that exists between Christians. But think about it even on a, on a small level, even in churches. How many churches have divided and have split over core doctrinal issues? There's not many that I know of. Usually it's over silly things like the color of the carpet or this person said this or this pastor's leaving go here and he won't stake these people with him. Like it's usually silly things. How much more then, globally, would that be the case if we're dividing over, over these, over these uh, things that we add to the Scriptures? Like, well, I believe this is the way it should be played out. It requires us not to add to the Scriptures if we're going to see fulfillment of what Jesus is praying for here among us, unity among believers, even in our own community and, and state and, and local and then global level. And then the third is this. Christian unity requires us to do theological triage. May I ask, what in the world do you mean when you say that, Matt? Well, if you get rushed to the ER, let's just hypothetically say in this example, you're rushed to the ER because you've got an ingrown toenail and it really hurts, like really hurts. And you get there, and at the same time that you get there, somebody comes up and they've just had a heart attack. That person is going to see the doctor before you do with your ingrown toenail. Like that makes sense. That's, that's triage. You assess the situation. This is more vital than this. Let's see this, right? And the same thing must happen for us as Christians. Core doctrines are not up for debate. Things like the deity of Jesus, the Jesus as the only way of salvation, Jesus' death as substitutionary atonement, Jesus' bodily resurrection, justification by faith alone. Those things are core doctrines. They're not up for debate. They're non-negotiables. We call them primary doctrines. All Christians, everywhere, 
agree to those doctrines or by their disagreement with those doctrines, they are proving themselves, in fact, to not be Christian. Right? Does that make sense? And then there are doctrines outside of these that are, yes, important, but not essential to Christian unity. They may be essential to Poplar Spring unity, to our body, but not essential for Christian unity, global church unity. Things like baptism, ecclesiological convictions about how we do church, eschatological convictions about the end times, the different things that we may disagree, the color of the carpet, that we may disagree about, but that we can still have unity with believers outside of this congregation. So hear me carefully. I'm not saying that those doctrines are pointless or unimportant. No, in fact, the opposite is true. We should study those things and hold biblical convictions on all of those secondary and tertiary doctrines. And as the church, as Poplar Spring Baptist Church, we should be in agreement on much of them, especially things like baptism and church membership. But we can and should love and have fellowship with believers from other denominations without allowing those secondary and tertiary doctrines to cause us to divide and to shout and yell at one another because we think we're right. Francis Schaeffer said this. Again, I'm quoting Schaeffer again this morning. He says, The real chasm must be between true Bible-believing Christians and others, not at a lesser point. The chasm is not between Lutherans and everybody else, or Baptists and everybody else, or Presbyterians and everybody else. The real chasm is between those who have bowed to the living God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and thus to the Scriptures, the communication of who God is, and those who have not. And so as we wrap up this morning, I think just an application like, Ask yourself, do you long for unity in the global body of Christ in the same way that Jesus is praying for unity in, 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 in hours before he's crucified? Like that's what's on his heart? That, that the people that are known by his name, that would name the name of Christ, would be unified and, and, and love one another? Or does it, does it grieve you to see pockets of Christianity yelling at other pockets of Christianity because of side issues? Maybe even important issues, but side issues? Like, I can't imagine that's what Jesus had in mind when he prayed that we would be one. And we don't compromise truth, and we have convictions, and the reason we are convictionally Baptist as opposed to something else, are, those are important things, but it shouldn't cause such separation that we can't lift the name of Christ with a brother or sister that we meet in the grocery store and, and celebrate that they are too born again, right? Let's commit to praying for unity here at Poplar Spring. I mean, I think if we've seen this issue come up so many times in Jesus' prayer, this issue of this idea of unity that Jesus is praying for, how in the world can we not be more focused on it here locally at as Poplar Spring Baptist Church and then also globally? And I think this is one of the beautiful things about having partners in places like Uganda and Malaysia is that they do things different from us. And it sounds and it looks a whole lot different. They love Christ. And they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we look past some of those cultural things and say, hey, when we're together, let's focus on Jesus. Let's live, live high in the name of Christ. He's what makes us one. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. God, I pray that we would submit to it daily, that when our maybe preconceived ideas or convictions that we have because of our upbringing or whatever the case may be, when those convictions come up against your word, that your word would win every time. That we would submit to the authority of Scripture in every, uh, in every corner of our life and to every facet that it speaks. God, I pray that your people here at Poplar Spring would be known and characterized by love and that that love would, would be a witness to the world that just something's different and that something is Christ. He's the one that's brought transformation in our life. And so God, would you go with your people today? I pray as, as you prayed, Jesus, that you would keep us from the evil one. 
that you would keep us from slowly looking more and more like the world. God, if there's one here this morning that's never put their faith and trust in you, I pray today would be the day that they would run to the cross, ask forgiveness of sins, and give their life fully and wholly to you, King Jesus. You're worthy of our, our, our worship, our praise, our devotion. So I pray for the believers here at Popple Spring. Would you keep us? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.